We like to drink beer, a lot of it. After a long night of drinking and talking crime and conspiracies, there's nothing that wakes us up and gets us ready to start the day better than just brew coffee. With a great selection of roast levels to choose from, you're guaranteed to find one that suits your style. Small batch roasted to highlight the unique features of each coffee bean, Just Brew Coffee caters to both casual and hardcore coffee drinkers alike. Since 2010, Just Brew Coffee has worked tirelessly to perfect the roasting process and technique, which has resulted in seriously delicious, always flavorful, and never bitter tasting coffee. If you're already drinking JBC, raise your mug. If you're not, raise your standards. Check them out in social media and remember, they roast, you just brew. Check out their new online store at youjustbrew.com and up your coffee game today. Use code NECRO15 to receive 15% off your order of two pounds or more. Today is part one of a multi-part series exploring Jonestown. In this episode, we take a look at Jim Jones' upbringing, his infatuation with religious preachers, and why he admired Father Divine. How did Jim learn to become so manipulative? What tricks did he use to convince people he was a natural leader? And how did he lay the groundwork for what would become one of the most infamous cults to ever exist? Also, the man had an assistant who managed and coordinated his own personal fuck schedule. I gotta hear about this. I'm Mike. I'm Ian. And I'm Dave. If you think you know the story behind the phrase, drinking the Kool-Aid, stick around. It was fucking Flavor-Aid. It wasn't Kool-Aid, Flavor-Aid. Generic fucking Kool-Aid. This is Necronomapod. We owe our soul to the company store trying to keep up with Whitey. We have the biggest color TV, biggest Cadillac. We think that's going to make us free. That makes us more in prison. That's why I don't own a car. I don't own any new furniture. I never buy any new clothes. I have never bought a new pair of shoes in my life. And that's why I am free, because I don't have to have anything. That's why I can speak my peace, because I don't owe any bills. I'm not afraid of losing my job, because I know I can go home and eat some greens on our church property. I'm free. You're not free with your Cadillac. You're doing just exactly what the man wants you to do. Buy his goods so you'll never have any real economic freedom. He wants you to buy everything he, he advertises on TV so he'll keep you perpetually owing your soul to the company store. You're not free, you're a slave. So we're struggling here to contain the boner in Ian's pants currently <laughs> over uh, today's topic and the next couple weeks. Ian, I think this is, this is why you started this podcast, is it not? Well... I've been itching for this one. Well, my my original plan was to save this, yeah, until we really ironed everything out. And big fan of Jonestown. This is your specialty. Yeah, this is, this is your uh, bread. He couldn't wait. He couldn't fucking wait. This is like my season finale. I can just <laughs> so we can it. just quit the podcast. After this, we're gonna ride off into the sunset. <laughs> yeah. After after these episodes air. Yeah. All right. Hey, before we get going though, we have a special shout out to uh, Odell Brewing Company in Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, they sent us some of their beer. They liked the show. They were fans. They sent us some of their beer, and that's what we're drinking today. We've been drinking it for a couple hours now, and we're uh, pretty inebriated, uh, ready to start recording. Yeah. Some cool koozies, too. And they sent us some some cool koozies. We got some swag along with it. They sent us their uh, 90 Shilling, which I guess is like their flagship beer. Uh, probably, I would imagine they're most popular. It's delicious. And they also sent us their classic IPA, which I fucking love. I'm a huge IPA fan. You guys know that. Um, 
their classic IPA won a gold medal at the World Beer Cup. And it is awesome. 7% alcohol. Have a few of those in me now. I'm ready to go. <laughs> I mean, I'm fired up for Jonestown now. <laughs> Sloppiness to ensue. Well, we'll see what happens. But anyways, uh, Odell Brewing Company, uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, if you're interested, check out uh, Odell Brewing at odellbrewing.com. That's O-D-E-L-L brewing.com. Fantastic beers. I'm a big fan of their classic IPA. Thanks again to Odell Brewing for sending these uh, cocktails and the uh, the koozies. Thank Delicious. you. So let's get into it, Ian. You've been salivating over there. Jonestown. Yep. So right off the bat, I want to thank Fielding McGee and the Jonestown Institute out at San Diego State. The amount of information there is unreal. And a lot of the audio clips we'll take from this and for the intros and stuff all comes from out there. So I just want to credit them. And Ian is too modest to brag about it so i'll do it for him you've even sent them some articles that they've published and put on their website before right yeah and i'm gonna do another one they post them uh in october i think he reviews everything in october so tell us about your article the one i wrote was just a uh it was just a short one about like if there were good times in jonestown or not so it was interesting to to go through is it still posted on their site yeah okay and so yeah. and we'll post the link to the site then so people can check cool. it out and yeah. they can look yeah. you up. And, You're a published and, author. Look at that. <laughs> Fucking cool. Yeah. And you got another one going to maybe this October? Yeah, I mean, if, with the podcast, I don't know with doing all these notes if I'm going to be able to or not, but I'm going to try. All right. Well, so. you also have some uh, legitimate uh, paraphernalia too, right? It's yeah. like you're a real aficionado here. Yeah. This is, I don't know what it is about this about this story i think it's all the audio honestly because like you, you can imagine you're there with yeah all the, yeah because it took me like it was probably a full year to actually get through all the guyana tapes hmm. it's 170 tapes they're all about two hours long that's a lot of audio man. <laughs> i listened that's to pretty it disturbing. All. yeah we're not kidding when we said he's excited about the, yeah. the, these next few episodes yeah, and there was times that I had to take a break because I just felt like drained from listening sure. to it because it puts you right in that, uh, right in there. Yeah. Well, so let's get into it. So yeah, so we're it'll be a this one will be a three parter, and we're just gonna you know this is a long this was a long game. He was it's was like twenty plus years it took to get there and take a look how he manipulated everything. And I think one of the things that we're gonna end up debating a lot is. Were were his intentions good, and this turned into the ends justify the means, or was he just a straight sociopath that just saw the black community as something he could manipulate to get the power? Hmm. So, is this something we're going to maybe save until the end of the third episode, when we kind of just? I mean, I think it's just something we can debate as we go throughout. Yeah. Okay. So, James Warren Jones was born May thirteenth, nineteen thirty one, to James Thurman Jones and Lynetta Putman. His mom called him Jimba was his nickname. And Lynetta, it was not her birth it was not his mother's birth name. On her birth certificate, it lists her as Lunette Putnam. Um and she was just described as being a pain in the ass just for being just for the sake of being a pain in the ass. Like she would change her name multiple times, but then not tell anybody that she changed her name. Like she would go by Lynetta you know, she would add an A to it, whatever. Right. And then Slight when somebody changes. called her Lynette or something different, she would get like personally offended 
I love women like that. They're so much fun. <laughs> Almost like a, t- like a tension-seeking like drama queens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. By the time she met Big Jim, she had already... He was her fourth marriage by the time she was 25 years old. So she had already blown through three guys. Hmm, impressive. Big Jim was a World War One veteran that had his lungs just completely blown out from a German gas attack. And so mentally and physically for the rest of his life, he was just kind of... Fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't really able to hold a job or, or do anything. She married him because he was from a very wealthy family. So, and he was like pushing 50 already and she was 25, you know, right. And he couldn't do anything, you know? So it was obviously because he was wealthy or from a wealthy family. That never happens. (laughs) Women don't ever do things like that. (laughs) So to, uh, people in the town would call him big Jim to separate him from, uh, from Jim jr. Personally, I'm a fan of slim Jim. Those are delicious. (laughs) Step into it. It's did Macho oh, Man like yeah. snap into a Slim Jim? Dig it. <laughs> so Jim, Big Jim, he would spend his days at a pool hall, just playing cards, drinking coffee, and pop. Because where they lived in Indiana was still a dry area. Stop the podcast. It's <laughs> over. I'm, I've lost interest. So like the county or the state or there was areas after prohibition was repealed that there were dry counties still? Mm -hmm. Dry county. Where was this again? Indiana. Fucking Indiana, man. Terrible. Dry county. Go and play pool and you're going to drink coffee and pop. Soda for some of you out there. Soda to some of you. Oh, shit. All right. Yeah, because I mean, it wasn't even Well, Big Jim probably shouldn't be drinking alcohol anyways. No. He's already, he's losing his lungs. You don't need to lose your liver either. Maybe Big Jim does need some alcohol. Yeah, maybe it well, would have helped the same him out time a little more. He spent the last twenty. He lived twenty more years, though. That's a, that's a full life. Well, ish. Get blown out in World War One like that. I think you. Well, you need a few beers. Don't get me wrong. First drink would be on me. I'd get him a drink, but not in this dry ass county. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck Indiana. So Lynetta claimed that when she was pregnant with Jim, she had a vision of the the Egyptian River of Death. And then saw herself dying on the cross. She was then visited by the spirit of her mother telling her it wasn't time yet. She still needed to give birth to a great man. That's one of so the... she's got that going on. Well, that's one of the examples of her just coming up with shit. Just a, And we've heard these visions and these delusions of grandeur before. Yeah. You know, same old story. Just like Dr. Carl with his... Uh, what is it? His exotic brown hair goddess. Yeah. That's right. Uh, his visions. She was a pain in the ass, but some of the stuff that people judged her on, it was just the times. Like, she wore pants. She didn't wear a dress or anything. She spit. She smoked cigarettes in public, and she swore. Which, I mean, she wasn't Well, I mean, if she would have swallowed, she would have been accepted into the community. (laughs) She just wasn't very ladylike for the time. She wasn't a traditional woman. Not at all. Which is whatever. I mean... Now it wouldn't even be something you looked at, but back you know, back all. then. But back then, yeah. That and the fact that she was a fucking drama queen. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I already brought it up before that she changed her name multiple the spelling of her name multiple times and then would take offense to it. But she was like constantly said she was gonna give birth to a great man and telling Jim that he was gonna be a great man when he grew up, but she didn't raise him at all. She just wrote him off and ignored him. And 
well, why should she do any work? She were, she was already told he was going to be a great man. Right. So. <laughs> so like the prophecy would self-fulfill. Yeah. She didn't have to put the effort in. Fuck. Why should that great. be on her? She's yeah. got to go, you know, wear pants and spit. She, she was a big believer in um, reincarnation. <laughs> so she would say stuff like that she already, she did this stuff in a past life oh, kind of thing. Of course. So she was out of vacation in this life. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. And like I said, she she wrote him off basically when and when he was a baby, she said, quote, he looked like an ugly Eskimo. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> she make him live in an igloo up at <laughs> some of the nicknames on these shows. Old right? Saggy Baggy Eye. I forgot about Saggy Baggy Eye. Yeah. Ugly Eskimo. He's great. Screen door intruder. We got some yeah. fucking awesome nicknames on this show. So since Big Jim couldn't hold a job, Lynetta worked in the assembly line at the Winchester Glass Factory. Wait, I thought they were rich. But he was from a rich family. Well, she works in a factory now? So Big Jim's family bought them their house and said that they would cover some of the bills. Okay. But Lynetta had to get a job and cover up cover the rest stuff. of the stuff. Right. Yeah. But they yeah, they did buy him a house. That's nice. But and she was like super pissed about that. She felt she was better than having to work. I bet. This woman but, feels entitled to everything. Oh, yeah. And for whatever reason, really weird, she wouldn't let Jim into the house if she wasn't at home. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, she would lock him out of the house. So like at like four or five years old, he's just wandering the neighborhood with nothing to do. It's terrific. Yeah. Thanks, Mom. Awesome parenting. Right. And they said that... Um, what was Big Jim doing? Down at the, the pool hall? Yeah, and playing right. cards and hanging Trying out. Trying to die. <laughs> his kidneys or his lungs. Having some pop. Yeah, yeah. that's the thing, too. It's like, why wasn't, you know, yeah. you figure Big Jim could at least watch him. Not let Somebody him, step up to the plate. Yeah, not just let him walk around. Turn him into becoming a fuck. Yeah, because he, he loved animals, and they said like he there was like a pack of dogs in the neighborhood that would just follow him everywhere. I don't know if he was just feeding them all the time, and that's why they followed him, but yeah. they said like they would just see Jim, like five, six years old, just walking around with a pack of dogs behind mm. him, just <laughs> wandering the neighborhood. That's got to be a hell of a sight. So eventually he was taken in during the day by a Nazarene preacher's wife named Myrtle Kennedy, and she started taking Jim to church with her every Sunday, and he absolutely loved it. And that was the other thing is his mom was an atheist, Big Jim's always down at the at the pool hall, so they stuck out like a sore thumb since they didn't go to church. Mm. Like this was like a community of like conformity. Sure. You know, you go to church on Sundays. So what we're saying is atheism could have prevented Jonestown, right? Well, he well, we'll get into it later. He <laughs> yeah. was a Jim was an atheist. If he wasn't uh, subjected to this uh, preacher nonsense, uh, yeah. So this is what had the first big impact on him was the preachers. Yeah, and he also the, had the way they can control the crowd. Right, and he also had um, he had become friends with a little boy that his dad was a, a pilot, and so for a while Jim got real into airplanes, hmm. and I think and then once he found the church thing, he gave up on the airplanes. But he, I think, what he noticed was that like at the airport, everybody looked up to the pilot. And then at the church, everybody looked up to the to the preacher. So essentially, so, anyone who people looked up to and would follow, right. and would believe in, and look yeah. at as like a a higher figure, right? And so eventually, he just started going from church to church, listening and taking notes on how preachers 
were doing their sermons and stuff. They said like he would just go sit in for an hour and then bounce out and go to another church for their last hour. Like he just was going all over the place. Church hopping, if you will. Right. Learning how to scam people. Yeah. I mean, well, learning how to how to win over their trust. Yeah. Yeah. He immediately, as a kid, was not into stuff that other kids were into. And especially he had an obsession with death. One night he took the local kids with him to a local casket factory. And because no one locked their doors back in the day, they were just able to walk right in. And he had all the kids lay in a casket to see how it felt to be dead. Fuck that. (laughs) That's creepy. That's terrifying. He did it multiple times. Every time less, you know, fewer and fewer kids would come with him because they're like, this yeah, is fucking saying, creepy. Uh, forget that. Right. I want to sit at home and eat my Campbell's Chunky Soup out of the can and not be fucking locked in a casket, you right. weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> and then he would start having dead animals. He would start getting dead animals from the side of the road and having funerals for him. And it would invite the other kids to attend. And like he would like these would be like full blown like he was the preacher funerals for these dead animals yeah, practicing that preacher scam and we're still talking like what like 12 years old here 10 yeah yeah 10 Damn. or 12 it's really strange really really odd ian what were you doing at 10 12 years old watching wrestling yeah. you and me both brother <laughs> yeah. pretending to wrestle <laughs> right. with my brother <laughs> so when when older kids got weirded out by the funerals he would start getting the younger kids to attend And the younger kids were just happy to have attention from someone older. And when they tried to leave, Jim would bully them into staying. And that's that's something like right off the bat that he he learned that real quick with the younger kids was that the people that no one's paying attention to that want attention or want something are the people to go after. Those are the people that will listen to you. That's how all cults operate. Right. Lost puppies. And we'll see that with the... That's the thing. Was he a sociopath and saw the black community as something to manipulate because they needed things and he could give them to him? Or Mm -hmm. did he really want to help? Maybe some of both. Right. So with World War II going on, yeah, I I mean, I guess you could say that he looked up to Adolf Hitler, but it wasn't his, it wasn't the policies of Nazi Germany. It was the the showmanship of everything, the... Being, well, Adolf Hitler was a very charismatic individual. Right. I mean, he was able to to convince, you know, hundreds of thousands of people to follow right. him and to believe in him. Mm-hmm. So, um, obviously, he's a piece of shit individual. But from someone for someone like Jim Jones, who's who's attracted to these authoritarian figures who can command an audience and right. who, can, who can speak well and who can um, convince people to follow them. Sure, I guess Hitler would be a good example for him. I guess FDR held the crowd pretty well too, though you know, back here in the homeland. Maybe it was the aggressiveness of yeah. Hitler's speeches, the aggressiveness, the yelling, and and the standing. Yeah, FDR was in a wheelchair. Um, <laughs> it was just a bad joke. Oh uh, well, FDR is <laughs> very <offensive>. polio. <laughs> so, like, while the other kids were pretending to be American soldiers beating the Nazis, Jim would pretend that he was Hitler. And have all the other the younger kids be be his troops and be like command them around. So he a little bit idolized Hitler in some way, shape, or form. If he's playing him as a kid, yeah. Well, and, and making I, all of the other the other kids be his his 
soldiers. And I don't think it wasn't the kids would message. Didn't know what he was going yeah. on. I, over yeah, there. I understand that. It wasn't the Hitler message. It yeah. was more so just him being in charge. Right. When kids would mess up or whatever, he would just whip them in the back of the <laughs> legs with a with a branch. This is <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Also, Mike, your FDR joke's gonna live in infamy. <laughs> I was thinking it was gonna get cut out since no one got it at first. <laughs> I'm leaving it in there. All right. <laughs> so and and he didn't really have any steady friends at that time. Like it was just oh know, no shit, <laughs> just well, bossing yeah. around. Because it just sounds like guy. a fucking party. Yeah, you friend from this guy, you're gonna get locked in a casket and get your legs whipped with a branch. I hate this fucking guy already. <laughs> Fuck you, Jim. Dig Jones. him up and punch him in the fucking face. <laughs> he eventually did get a steady friend named Don Foreman, but he would just constantly bully him and like shoot BB guns at him. Oh, that's a good way to retain friends. And it's the perfect example of him, not Jim Jones, not being able to let somebody leave him. Like if one member left the people's temple, he took it as, you know, I mean, they had thousands of members. He was personally offended. Right. If one person left, that was it, you know, and you see it here. Don wanted to leave Jim's house because it was time for him to go home, and Jim didn't want him to. So Jim pointed a twenty-two at him and sh- and shot in his direction. Nice. <laughs> yeah, and like like I said, he just couldn't handle hmm. anybody leaving him or, or not wanting to. Didn't know how to deal with that, right? I I feel like he really did believe in racial equality. I think he. I think it's a little bit of both with if he with him believing in it and opportunity preying on people who were looking for someone to help them and to listen. Right. As a teenager, and this is like like 15, 16, he would go to the black side of town and just stand on a corner and preach to everyone how everybody's equal and they listened to him because no one came over that side of town at that time. No white people did. Here you got this this charismatic kid out here, you know, yelling about how everybody should be equal and stuff. Right. I don't know if I'm buying it. I don't know. He also he picked up his mom's bad habits and he he just was at, like like too good for everyone and he wouldn't speak to anyone else unless he spoke to them first and he was always dressed up like he was going to church all the time. Which makes sense cuz that's the people he kind of idolized oh, yeah. and saw himself after the preachers but to other kids it's weird absolutely you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? get your <laughs> ass beat yeah. yeah unless you're a good enough talker that you can talk your way out of it which i feel like he might have been able to do yeah and then in high school he, he wasn't very good at sports but he was good at organizing things and getting people to listen to him and he started a basketball league and this is very odd because he it's he has been known to love animals throughout his whole life, but it ended when he just let a puppy fall down a trap door and die. Well, was the puppy the ball? What yeah, is, I don't what does that, that have to do, do with the basketball league? Well, because it was at practice. It was at practice. I should have said this before. It was at practice for one of the basketball things, and for whatever reason, there was a puppy there. Yeah, and he let it fall and die, and everyone was like, "Well, like, why the fuck did you do that?" And then they all just quit because they were weirded out by the fact that he let this puppy hmm. die it's the worst part of the story thus far and it's bizarre because he he liked it you know from all accounts he right. liked animals so it was a misunderstanding right 
But yeah, so they they got weirded out and quit. In 1947, his, his uh, Big Jim died from respiratory issues. But by this time... That's his dad. Yeah. By this time, Lynetta and, uh, and Jim had moved out and went to Richmond, Indiana. And they had pretty much just forgotten about Big Jim. And neither of them came back to attend his funeral. That's cold. Yeah. And this, this is a super bummer. They still had her name written on his tombstone if she would ever come back and, and be buried with him. That's sad. <laughs> yeah. So he might have actually loved her. Meanwhile, she I was just did, in it yeah. for the money. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and she was not spitting, ever. Spitting, not swallowing. Right. <laughs> and she was not buried next to him. So. That's sad. Yeah. But when, that, when they left, so they weren't getting any financial help from, from Big Jim's family. So Jim and Lynetta got jobs. Uh, Jim found a job as an orderly at the Reed Memorial Hospital, and that's where he met his future wife, Marceline. He was great at his job, made it super fun and comfortable for people, like older people with changing diapers. And I mean, it seems like this would be a, a job he would do very well at. Yeah. Why do you say that? I don't know. Just like he's like being able to get people to like you. Kind of being in a position of power because you're helping them, okay. you're in control, right. you're changing them. Yeah. It's a very easy and like I feel like see this as like shooting fish in a barrel. Yeah. Like he has all these people here, they're captive it's, audience. It's a captive audience. It's a um at a at a hospital, correct? So he's working with um with maybe elderly people. They're not getting a lot of visitors. They're looking for attention. They're maybe he tickles their taint a little bit he while mu- he's changing the diaper. <laughs> Probably. Weird <laughs> Ingratiates fuck. himself. Maybe so. All right. I just seem like this would be a, a perfect environment for him just to kind of start preying on people, using praying in the term of just gaining their trust and talking sure. to them. So. Right. So his old buddy, uh, Don Foreman, Moved into that area, and uh, and Jim got him a job at the hospital, but went right back to bullying him. Jim knew that Don was just terrified of the dark, so he would specifically give him things to do in the darkest parts of the hospital, just <laughs> just fucking with him. He's a cock. Yeah. Man. And he would give him uh, the worst patients to take care of, like a guy that had uh, elephantitis of the balls. <laughs> Don, good news. You'll be soaping the giant balls today. I don't understand why Don still was his friend. Yeah, yeah right. You know what I mean? Like, Hey, let me move to where uh, Jim's at so he can bully me again. Yeah, maybe he'll shoot a twenty-two at me again. <laughs> Leave me in a dark room when I'm terrified oh, of the dick. dark. Eat this guy. So that's where Marceline comes into the picture. Marceline Baldwin came from a typical Christian family that was heavily involved in politics, and she never really dated anybody, didn't have any interest in anyone until she met Jim Jones, Um, and he would be her first and last relationship, which is crazy. That's pretty ominous. Yeah. Could just be love, Dave. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and she was just a really... She's a really nice person. The only thing that was ever said about her, like being rebellious or anything, was that she voted a straight Democratic ticket one time because her family was all Republican. Hell yeah, here's to you, Marceline. (laughs) So that's how... uh, I mean, we're talking Indiana here, dry counties. Yeah. Fucking balls out. Are we still in Indiana? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Richmond, Indiana. So that was her rebellious phase, was just voting a straight Democratic ticket. How dare she? 
so she was a nursing student at the hospital and one night she had the job of preparing a body of a woman who uh, had recently died as fate would have it Jim Jones was the the orderly to help her out and she was just really impressed with how like gentle Jim was with the body and the woman's like just being doing what he does talking and he was real consoling to the family of, of this woman and like gentle when he was entering the corpse, or I, I think they had to wash it. And <laughs> oh, stuff. okay. Yeah. I'm just used to necrophilia discussions <laughs> right. on the show, so he didn't violate the the corpse or anything. At no. this point, okay. there's been necrophilia, no necrophilia uh, in the story. That's different. Okay. At least not up to this point. There's no necrophilia in this story. <laughs> okay. Well, spoiler alert if you were looking for that in the next couple episodes. <laughs> Join us next week for some necrophilia discussion. But yeah, with Jim's the the charisma and everything she fell she instantly fell for him but he manipulated marceline like he did everything else he made up all kind of stories like how he told her that he quit the basketball league that he started because of racism and a story about how he was getting his hair cut and and left with only half his hair cut because they refused the to um to service a black guy bullshit right yeah no it's all yeah it's not not real and he would get in screaming fights. Like, it wasn't even a debate with her family, like, about politics. Like, it would be, like, a screaming fight. Like, he would be fighting with her dad and stuff. And her whole family was like, there's something off about this guy. Like, she wasn't seeing it, but her whole family was seeing that there was, there was, you know, like, he was a con Was there man. something off about him that they saw? Like or a was con he just thing. more like he was liberal and they were conservative? Or he was playing off that he was liberal and they were conservative, so they hated him. I think it was more they saw through his bullshit that he was. They just thought there was, was a con, man. yeah. But so they, because most that, people that aren't vulnerable, you know, gullible people can spot a con man, right? This guy's clearly a con man. I mean, you can use. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I can. Usually well, I, I mean, tell at this point, if they're just talking, me. if they're just talking politics, I don't know. I don't. Is he trying to convert them? I don't know. Well, that was just so an was example just of him not yeah. getting along. Don't know with if it wasn't family. like a political issue or if they just legit smelled his bullshit. That's all. I yeah, was. no, that her, pretty much her, it was her whole family and her friends and stuff were like, "There's something." So then he became the bad boy. Yeah, and she had to have him, and they got married. Yeah, June twelfth, nineteen forty nine, and it was a double marriage. It was her and it was her and Jim, and then her sister and her husband. I guess that was a thing back then to. Really? Cut down on costs or whatever. Wow. To, Dave, you were, you were gonna say, Dave, you were alive. What did you ever go to a double wedding? <laughs> Not even funny at all. <laughs> I mean, what was it like living in a Truman America? <laughs> I thought the double wedding was gonna be Jim and Jesus. He married no. <laughs> <laughs> a triple threat wedding. <laughs> After they got married, Jim told her. That he was an atheist, that he, because he had sold this to her, like he was a, a good Christian and everything. So he's an atheist. Yeah. Oh, maybe this guy's not half bad. <laughs> so let's reevaluate. Yeah. So he, he's already admitting one thing that was complete show, right? For a while. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to establish that. Yeah, and he he told her that he couldn't believe in a god that would allow so much suffering in the world. I get it. I, I can't fault that reason, <laughs> but, but he would believe in a God that allow that didn't allow suffering. So he wasn't necessarily he would have believed in a God if there was a God that didn't allow suffering. Well, just using his words. Now you put words in his mouth. Yeah. Well, 
I think this guy put a lot of his lot of words in his mouth that he didn't necessarily believe or know either. Yeah, yeah, we'll see that for sure. So because of that, she she started considering divorce pretty soon. But with just the times and divorce not being, you know, looked down upon, her mother talked her out of it. And that's crazy, too, because I think if they would have got divorced, none of this would have ever happened. So and you, you think he, all of this? I don't think any of it would have happened. And you're talking to someone who knows nothing about, like, the story, so. Yeah, I think he, he manipulated her and used her knowledge on politics and things and to get in inner circles that I, I don't think any of this would have ever happened. Interesting. It's a lot of what ifs. Yeah. Because he saw as a young kid that everybody looked up to preachers, you know, and that was a way to gain a lot of respect in the community. Even though he was an atheist, he became a preacher and it wasn't to spread the word of God, but it was to to spread socialism and equality. So he was an atheist, socialist, Christian preacher. Okay. So and he thought everything should be shared. We'll see. Not the decisions. No one else. He was the only he one. He was that, the only one that could make those not. decisions. He was having trouble finding somewhere that would accept him to be a to be a preacher. But he eventually found it with the Methodist Church. They changed a lot of their views in 1952 to be more progressive and aligned a little bit more with uh, Jim's personal beliefs. Um, Quote personal beliefs. Yeah, we don't know. He started to go into black churches and and loved how everything worked, the energy, you know, everybody singing and and getting into it. Uh, but he he learned the most of the manipulation and stuff from the revival circuit. And the revival circuit, it was like uh, tra- like traveling preachers, right. and that was like the speaking in tongues and all that stuff going on. All that legitimate stuff, right? Yeah, the real stuff, not speaking that in tongues. phony. Oh, yeah. So he, they would just set up shop like in the middle of town. Yeah, well, it was like, like a long like, Indiana. Like they would set up big tents and almost like the, a circus type thing. Yeah, and there would be a bunch of different preachers. And that's what he saw and was like, "Oh, this is these guys got it." Oh yeah, and like the preachers would would use a plant in the crowd to do a to perform a big healing, like people getting out of a wheelchair. Like those people really weren't paralyzed, but whoa, that's know. not real. Those healings? <laughs> Stop. Next thing I know, you're going to tell me the Ultimate Warrior didn't actually beat Hulk Hogan <laughs> at WrestleMania 6. <laughs> Are you going to tell me that right now? Because if so, I'm going to flip a table. <laughs> Let's move on before I get upset. <laughs> and because Jim was just going to these things by himself, you know, he wasn't a well-known preacher or anything. He would uh, he would just walk around the crowd and just listen to what people were saying. Like if someone was complaining about something or something going on in their life. Because he had this crazy memory where if he heard your name mm. once and heard one of your problems, he would remember it and be able to, to single you out and I can't remember, by name. I can't remember a motherfucker's name when I meet them initially. Like five seconds after you shake their hand. I go to shake their hand, like, oh, hey, I'm Mike. Hey, I'm so and so. And then I turn away and I'm like, wait, what the fuck was her name? Because I just get so, like, I just want to meet them and get that awkward interaction over with. I can't remember the I do that all the time. Yeah. Like, I I would remember if I saw their face in 20 years, but I couldn't tell you their name five seconds. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy in the guy in the tapes recorded at Guyana. There's a little over 900 people there. And in the meetings, he's calling people out by name. And like personally wow. talking to just all kind of people, it's crazy. Yeah. 
I mean, that's a that's a that's a skill, man. That's a politician have. thing. Absolutely. Some people yes. have that they can remember names yeah. and faces and tell you whatever you told them. And yep. yeah, I wish I had some some of that. Yeah. I don't. I do I don't not give a fuck what you had to say. <laughs> I won't remember. I don't care. Nope. You're nope. an idiot. I just don't like talking to people very much. <laughs> but uh, so we're sitting in a fucking basement drinking beer yeah, with, <laughs> with like just close group of friends. <laughs> we can edit it, make it sound nice and pretty. <laughs> Which we don't. We don't edit everything. Obviously, this is just a perfect podcast minute <laughs> roll. But yeah, that's why I can't wait till we take this show on the road. Get, yeah. Start doing uh, meet and greets. <laughs> Live shows are like, oh, what are you guys doing? Why are you ten people in the audience? What's going on? <laughs> you just get like that little <laughs> one little applause. Yeah, so I mean, like he didn't have, even though he didn't have the the plant to perform a big, you know, crazy healing thing, you know, get somebody out of a wheelchair or something like that. He listened to people talking and would hear that if they were complaining about something, he would just, he would be preaching, he would call them out, you know, he would say, you know, so-and-so, whatever, you know, someone's name and be like, I, I'm hearing from God right now. I got it. I'm, I'm feeling the energy, whatever. Yeah, of course. Makes him feel special. He's like, you know, you're, you're having this problem in life right now and stuff. And people bought it, man. And, the, and I, I can get it if you already believe in that stuff. And here you've got this guy coming up. You have no idea he was listening to what you're saying. Right. And then all of a sudden he calls it out perfectly to you. And he so he quickly got the reputation that, mm. that he was hearing stuff from God. Or at least at very minimum. That the God he, was, he did not even believe in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. He doesn't even believe in it. I don't think most of those preachers believe in God. I think they all know they're phonies. I don't think any of them believe it. Just like I don't believe I would, that beard. I would say they believe probably more in the money and the fame than they do yeah. in God. I, they might believe in God, but they, it's not as important I, to them. I, yeah, I think it's just like beer drinkers who, who like, who tell us they like IPAs. Stop. I think they all hate IPAs. <laughs> it's fucking delicious. But they just like to say they like IPAs because no. everyone else likes IPAs, and it's like a beer. What have thing. I ever done to make you think I don't like an <laughs> I IPA? Just, I don't believe. People I actually love like it. IPAs. I'm currently sipping on Odell Brewing Company's classic IPA. It is fucking fantastic. I don't believe anyone likes the taste of IPAs. They are delicious. Pers- personal opinion. Delicious. Just being trendy. Just being trendy. Oh, that guy likes IPAs? I love, yes, tri- you know I love triple 90-minute, 45-minute hop IPAs. Uh, <laughs> you know me, triple double Mr. Hops. Trendy, in my NASCAR t-shirts <laughs> and my Chuck Taylors walking around. Uh, the most hops allowable on planet Earth. Oh, this is so yes, good. The more it's so bitter. I, my lips yes. are pursed, and I can't even open my mouth. That's, that's not what happens. <laughs> that is not. But yes, you are right. The more hops, the better. I like to feel like I'm punched in the mouth with a sip of an IPA. Ian, you appreciate a good IPA too, I, I so I'm gonna need them. you to stick up a little bit here too. You're getting attacked, also. I like the I don't like straight IPAs. I like the orange one. You like, like the, a little bit more of the citrus yeah. taste. I don't believe it. I think it's the fraud, they're delicious. Fraudulent, they delicious. That's a guy who likes Blantons. <laughs> Not good. <laughs> Stop it. Not good. Ridiculous. Fantastic. Speaking in tongues, faith healing, and IPAs—all fraudulent <laughs> nonsense. Let's move on. So as he was doing the the revival circuit, he was getting getting money from collection things here and there, and he went into the inner city of Indianapolis and opened a storefront church called Community Unity, um, and it was made up of an all black congregation. 
in Indianapolis wasn't like particularly violent towards black people in the 50s, but they they didn't want them around either, you so know. More passive aggressive racist. Yeah, I mean they they didn't let them go to restaurants or anything, mm-hmm. but they weren't uh They weren't fire hosing them in the streets right. like Alabama, sure. Yeah. Because white community leaders would meet with uh, black pastors to hear their issues, but nothing would ever change. They wouldn't do anything about it. Lip service. And this is how Jim Jones built his congregation, because he would start off his sermons by asking anybody if they had problems. And one one example that's in the book, uh, Road to Jonestown, there's an old woman that was having problems with her electric company. She was paying her bill on time and everything. But they weren't they weren't turning her electric back on. They weren't fixing it and stuff. So Joan sat down with her, wrote a le- helped her write a letter. And when she came back to the to church the following Sunday, her lights were back on. Hmm. And so he would do that with everybody. And so word started to spread throughout the black community that hey, there's this white preacher down here, and he's actually getting stuff done. He's right. not just not just going to talk and yeah. listen. He's he's getting it done for us. So do we feel he's a, a, a little bit genuine, some part genuine, or is he just an opportunistic, you know, self-serving kind of person? If you're asking me, not the expert who's just hearing this, I think he's a bit opportunistic. I, I, I think, think it's I'm, a little bit of both. Okay. I think he really did believe in equality, but I think there was, there's a little bit of an end game here, you okay. know, to okay. that he realized that this was going to be the way to to build this thing up. Sure. Okay. To make some more money because the church was small at the time. Jim sold spider monkeys door to door for $29 each. <laughs> I'm going to come at you like a spider monkey. <laughs> Talladega Nights. I would buy a spider monkey if someone came to my door for $29. There's a funny interview in awesome. one of the Jonestown documentaries where a lady ended up joining the, the People's Temple because he sold her a monkey. <laughs> Like she bought it, and he was like, "Oh, by the way, come to come to oh church. Come to church. There's plenty more of these." <laughs> so I'm looking up a spider monkey. He just walked around with these things, selling them. Mm-hmm. He had a car. I guess a car full of monkeys. I don't know. What the fuck? I sent you that picture of him and the two monkeys he's got on his shoulders. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'd probably buy a spider monkey for twenty nine bucks. Oh yeah. So, yeah, I mean, he and he was doing and at the same time as selling the monkeys. He was also still going down to the the revival circuit stuff and he was doing work down there. People are really buying into it. And he had up he had up to a thousand people come see him heal. Eventually, they would have to start turning people away. Do people pay to go to those things? Uh, You know, and I'm not they sure. Probably did, huh? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that. Hmm. And so gradually as he as he was gaining people, it's, you start to get to that. uh the ends justify the means where he was getting people that were uh, that were more interested in the racial equality aspect of him and were fine with him lying about God. So he let those people in on the secret that he really didn't believe half of what he was preaching. Yeah, like when he he would be able to like read people, you know, and if somebody was into the racial stuff, he'd be like, hey. That's what we're doing here, really. We're not doing the God thing. The end hmm. is is the racial equality and socialism. Okay. So, so, he, the, so he's talented at reading people. <clears throat> oh, yeah. And being able to prey on what people are, their, their own personal beliefs, and then he would just adapt his beliefs to fit what they were thinking. If, if it was 
racial inequality, that would be his number one thing. If it was, I have cancer, I need to get rid of this, that would become his number one concern. If it was God, that would be his concern. Yeah, he's there's a there's a sermon with him where he uh where he says, I, I can be anything you want me to be. If you yeah. need a if you need a father, I can be your father. If you need a preacher, I can be your preacher. Hmm. If you need a God, I'll be your God. You know, he's And that that's a perfect probably definition of what yeah. He did and what he thought he was. Yeah. So with these people that were that were fine with him lying about God, they would become his plants in the crowd. And he would call them out and tell them that they had cancer. And then a second plant would escort them to the bathroom and Jim would start doing his healing stuff, the preaching aspect of it. And when the plants came back out, they would have chicken guts and a paper towel, which Jim said was the cancer. <laughs> And people people ate it up, man. They they bought it. Oh, they ate up the chicken guts? No. <laughs> oh, oh. I'm kidding. But yeah. Chicken I'm, livers? No, but seriously, don't Not eat bad. chicken guts. I've never had chicken liver. Tasty. The the congregation was growing rapidly because he was, you know, he had his his black congregation in the inner cities, but now he was getting these people from the revival circuit that loved him and they were coming over now. Are there really that many gullible people in this country? There, I guess there are, but well, I think it's really it, hard to believe. I think at this time, you know, I mean, I don't think there's revival circuits now, really. Not like this, where they set up a tent and have thousands of people. Yeah, they have to big it. mega churches now, and they do the healing well, yeah, tours. Yeah, I think that. Oh, well, it's a different time, obviously, but I don't know. He he's a he's a charismatic guy who knows what to say he's going to the right areas and saying the right things to win people's trust and and that's that's what he's doing um at the time i mean, I, I don't know i think part of it is uh, it's easy for us to look back and say oh these people were fucking so gullible and duped at the time maybe it wasn't so easy i don't know well, I mean, to, I think, to say that or to think no, I, but there's the gullible people today too. That I'm like not, Benny absolutely. Hinn and you know, ten thousand people sure. at an indoor arena healing people as well, and they're throwing their money in a basket, right? So it's just hard to believe. And I mean, he was at this time, he was really like he was walking the walk of the the communal thing and the sharing. Like he was wearing, not wearing fancy clothes, and every all the money went back into this. He wasn't yeah. taking the money. I mean, he really was doing. He was doing what he was saying as far as the the social aspect of it was. Do you think uh, a lot of um, the religious stuff you had just said before? I, who'd you say, Benny? Benny Hinn, you know, the Dude, guy hits you in the face and you fall down <laughs> healed. I always think Ernest Angley. Ernest Angley, too, local yeah. guy. How much of that do you think is is legit? Like the crowd and like the money? Or do you think some of it's just kind of a work? Obviously, the healing is a like bit of a work. Like plants in the, in the... Yeah. And and even like just saying they made this much money, but they're really not making as much as they make it out to be. Maybe it's funded by just certain private groups. Know. It's just fucking ridiculous. Yeah. I, I, not to take us on a tangent, I just no, yeah. I mean, I I think what I think then after a while it could be for real, not plants, but other people like a placebo kind of thing, you know, for some stuff like yeah. you want to believe it and well, I think mean, yeah, I agree. I guess like people that want whole to feeling of community and stuff. I just can't get past the not being real fact. I don't know. It's chicken non- guts, it's nonsense. Chicken guts. Chicken guts, dude. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, so I mean, it was growing big time. And by uh, in 1956, Jim Jones bought a former Jewish place of worship that had the word um, temple carved on the outside. And then Jim Jones finally came up with the name People's Temple dun, 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 dun. without the apostrophe. Because in a socialist society, no one owns any. You're not claiming ownership Interesting. of it. Interesting. People's without the apostrophe. No one owns it. Look at that. I'm not sure I grammatically agree with that, but okay. <laughs> if there's no put that on here. the list of arguments you have with this uh, <laughs> this story thus far. All right, now I'm gonna drink a couple more uh, Odell Odell Brewing uh, beers here. These are tasty, and we'll be right back. Today's episode of Necronomapod is brought to you by Beardology. There are a lot of imitators out there, but there's only one place I buy my beard oil. Beardology beard oil nourishes your skin and won't leave you with that greasy feel. With over 17 cents available in their extensive product line, I trust my beard to Beardology. You can find Beardology at Beardology.co. Use code NECRO15 to receive 15% off your purchase. Beardology. Discover the best way to avoid the shave. So a large portion of the People's Temple membership was always elderly people, even up until the end. And that's why, I mean, the whole thing is is murder because we'll see going down that that he's he prepped these people for years for the end for what was going to happen but in Jonestown it was a third children a third elderly and a third adults okay so at minimum if you if anybody wants to make the argument that people went along with it at a minimum 300 a little over 300 people were murdered cuz those were all children Kids, yeah. yeah that didn't have a have an option but Jim and his wife Marcelin would they would start adopting elderly members of the congregation to live in their personal home, and eventually that turned into full blown operational nursing homes. It's like they take these old people's houses and turn them into nursing homes. No, no, they were taking people to live with them in their house, their own home, in their own home. Oh, like Jim and Marcelin were taking these elderly people in. And then eventually they built their own nursing oh, they just homes. Keep building more. Okay. They had multi. They had a few uh, just full blown okay. operational nursing homes, and the, and that did a couple of things for them. He got the money from the elderly people because they signed over their assets to him. He was able to give jobs to younger, primarily black members of the People's Temple that would have never had a job before. Where it was hard for them to find a job, right. and then he gained the community's trust. So that's a big thing with like people saying like, well, why didn't they just leave the cult? Well, you, they, a lot of them had nothing before, very little, and now they got jobs and yeah, you know, he reeled them in. He also founded a, a soup kitchen called the Free Restaurant that served around pretty close to three thousand people a week. He ran clothing drives and organized youth groups around the city to keep kids off the streets. So I mean, at this time, he was. He was walking the walk, yeah. right? He's doing he good doing, stuff. Yeah, I mean, he was doing good stuff. It's just the crazy thing about this that it just takes such a turn eventually, you know. The biggest thing, though, and this is like everything else, it just wasn't enough for him. He wanted political influence. And Marcelin had grown up, like we were saying, in a very political family. So she would go to the city meetings and, and scout out everything for Jim. You know, the next couple of days or week, whenever they had their meetings, he would go and know exactly what to say to and who to say it to. Was he gaining political clout in the city? Like he was starting to. Yeah, he was he was starting to at this time. Okay. 
I, I don't know if I put it in the outline or not, but he became in Indianapolis the director of the the housing. Really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So and that's, that's yeah. So yeah, he was gaining, and then we'll see in in part two when he gets to San Francisco, he's got some major political pull hmm. over there. But around this time is when Jim discovered Father Divine, also known as the Messenger and also known as the Reverend Jealous Divine. Also known as Sean Combs, also known as Puff Daddy, also known as P. Diddy, also known as Diddy. Jim symbol formerly known as Prince. (laughs) Fuck Prince. And and Jim just kind of took all of Father Divine's methods and just repackaged them. Well, but who, so who was Father Divine? So Father Divine started in 1919. He ran an integrated black and white cult that accomplished what Jim was trying to accomplish. It was very successful. Yeah, very successful integrated group. In Indy as well? Um, I believe in Philadelphia. Okay. Father Divine had a very successful compound. Um, he convinced followers that he was actually God and had the pick of having sex with any of his female followers. So, oh, all right. He was doing the the typical cult thing. You know, he had complete power. So Father Divine's followers believed in him so much that when his wife Pendania, otherwise known as Mother Divine, died in 1942, he replaced her with a 21 year old white girl named. Edina Richards, or sorry, Edna Richards, and he said that when Pendania died, she jumped bodies into Edna and was now known as Sweet Angel Divine. And Sounds legit to me. I don't know. No one questioned him at all. <laughs> no one even questioned <laughs> that. Guy's a PIMP man. Yeah. Mother Divine jumped bodies. Went from an old Some black woman to year old white girl. <laughs> I don't know that I can fault Father Divine there. I... <laughs> That's good mojo. All right, Jim Jones. Now it's starting to make sense who you're looking up to. Fuck Adolf Hitler. Let's go more with Father Divine, a.k.a. the messenger, a.k.a. or the Reverend Jealous Divine. (laughs) Well, that's the thing, too, is like, you know, we were saying he was doing good things for the community. But when he went out to see Father Divine, it was almost like a, oh, fuck, I've been doing this wrong the whole time. This is... To an extent. I'm running soup kitchens. Father Divine's pounded 21-year-olds. Well, but if that's what if that's what Jim Jones legit believed in, that he wanted racial equality, then he's doing the right thing. Father Divine had the racial equality and he had all the bonuses. On, well, know, he on had it side. in his cult, but was he making a difference in the community? No, not like Jim Jones was. Okay. So when, when Jim went out there to Father Divine's compound, he just he learned everything he could from him. And Father Divine was just happy to have someone to, to brag to and, and talk shit like, look at all I've accomplished, you know. Right. The biggest thing that Jim learned from Father Divine was how to improvise and be convincing enough that no one would question. Because Father Divine was, I mean, obviously talked his followers into the fact that his wife jumped bodies to a completely different race of woman. I mean, Mm -hmm. not even just a different woman, a whole different race. Can't prove it didn't happen. (laughs) All of a sudden, Mr. Religious over here, now that it involves (laughs) jumping to a 21-year-old body, (laughs) he believes all of a sudden. Um, And Jim, he also saw a shortcut with Father Divine. Since Father Divine was getting old, Jim's plan was to wait until Father Divine died. And when he did, he would try to convince Sweet Angel Divine that Father Divine had jumped bodies in the gym. He was going to flip it and reverse it on them. Smart. 
But that that plan would would wait a few more years because Father Divine wasn't. Well, he's got some time. Yeah, left. Yeah, he's got a little bit of time left. He's got twenty one year olds to buy. <laughs> so when when Jim got back to uh, to Indianapolis, he started to improve on his image. He brought his mother back into the picture because he hadn't seen her for years. His mo- How old is this asshole at this point? Jim, um, so nineteen fifty-two. He was born in uh thirty. I have a circle. Thirty-three. Thirty-one. Oh, thirty-one. Yeah. So he's so. only twenty-one. Twenty-one. After all this stuff, he's only twenty-one years old. Well, he started preaching. Jesus. To the black community when he was like fourteen. This fucking guy. But I mean, the thing. I mean, if you take out his manipulation. At 21, he's got nursing homes. He's got food drive or a soup yeah, kitchen. I mean, he's, yeah. he's super successful. Well, I think that work. was the whole point. What Dave was saying is like, it feels like this would have taken years and years and right. years. Yeah. Meanwhile, the guy's 21. He's already established himself this this well. Right. That's mm. crazy. But it, like he he hadn't seen his mom in years. And I, I think he, yeah, he she wouldn't let him in the house. But and he knew what she was, I think, deep down. That he knew she was full of shit and mm. whatever, but he he just bought her back in the picture because he knew that she would just run her mouth and talk about how great he was. Um, so she got a job. Shit talking runs well to that family. No, right, right. <laughs> so she got a job as a prison guard at the local women's prison to further improve his image. Jim and Marcelin decided to start a family, even though back in 1952 they completely failed at raising her cousin Ronnie. Ronnie came from a, bro- a broken home, and he always wanted to go back to his mom eventually. But Jim just decided Ronnie was his now. You're mine, <laughs> right? And he said he said that he could raise him better than anyone else could. And Jim started basically like gaslighting the kid and filling his head with all these lies about how his mom didn't love him anymore and all this shit. And it it backfired on him because. Because Ronnie saw exactly what Jim was doing, he didn't. He didn't buy into the. Just like the first the, guy to not buy into the bullshit. Yeah, and Jim he got out in time. Yep, and Jim took it as again a, like a personal insult. But the kid wanted just wanted to go back to his mom and say, "You can't just say you're mine now. That's not how how right. taking care of a kid works." Sure. So Jim and Marcelin adopted um, a ten year old daughter who was Native American named Agnes. They also adopted three Korean children, son Lou and daughter Suzanne and Stephanie. Stephanie died in a car crash, so when their biological son was born, he was named Stephen, but they spelled it S-T-P-H-A-N after Mm. the sister Stephanie. And then in 1961, they became the first white couple to adopt a black child in Indiana, and he was named Jim Jr. They also adopted a white child named Tim. And that would be that would complete what Jim called his rainbow family. <laughs> Pioneers. Gosh. Yeah, there's a there's a TV and you just sent a photo of that too, his rainbow family. Yeah. So we'll probably post that. Yep. Yeah, it's crazy that he was the first to adopt a black child in nineteen sixty one, huh? Yep. Interesting. So by nineteen sixty one, Jim had very lo- loyal supporters. Showed the showed the community that he was a family man. He's got all these adopted kids and everything. And then he started to gain political influence. And through all of that, he almost by himself desegregated the whole city of Indianapolis from restaurants to hospitals to to getting people jobs. That's interesting. Yeah. 
Um, and in an example, what he would do is he would go to a restaurant where blacks weren't welcome and he would go there with a group of people from his congregation and sit down and they'd be like, no, we're not serving you, you know? And the, he would be like, well, I'm a really important person in this community. You know, you're, you're embarrassing me right now, whatever. And they would throw him out. Then he would come back without his, people from his congregation. He'd say, look, you're going to let us sit down and I promise you I'll, I'll pack the place, you know, whatever. And then he would come in off hours where, you know, where it wasn't lunchtime, whatever, mm-hmm. and just fill yeah. the place with people. And that was that was like one of the the strategies he would use, and slowly businesses started started desegregating. It sounds like this guy could have been a civil rights icon instead of the fucking piece of shit he turned into, huh? Yeah, it's interesting. After he was successful with getting places to uh, to desegregate, then he would go around all the black communities in the area with flyers with the restaurant or the business or whatever, and say like, "This place is." is friendly towards you now. Like you can go here. And, but the only thing he wanted in return was just absolute loyalty to him and loyalty to, to the cause, to which means financially and emotionally and mentally and everything. Mm -hmm. And if anyone was (laughs) acting selfish or materialistic, they were to be reported to Jim immediately. And materialistic was just like buying yourself something extra like a new shirt or something it wasn't like how dare you try to look nice right Hmm. so it was a control thing he just wanted control over everybody yeah right i mean that's all he wanted was just absolute loyalty to him which just again i think leads me to more think that it was more about just having the control than it was about actual personal beliefs about uh uh, desegregating the cities or about civil rights or anything like that. It's just more about having the control. He found a, a system that he could he could break into and he could prey on, and and he did that very well. Yeah, I mean that's that's like one of the big questions that you, that you can always go back and forth on yeah. with this is what were the the real intentions? Yeah, so that's that's my little side thought right now and again we have a couple episodes to discuss this we'll see right he seemed to be doing work though i mean he was you have to do you have to do the work i think to get more of the control over the people Hmm. but again i'm only basing it on what we've discussed thus far yeah you would think a guy that was trying to single-handedly desegregate a whole city that he would have a lot of people that didn't like him but he didn't really have any enemies like People got along with him, but any successful cult, you have to have enemies. Sure. You have to have somebody opposing you. So you have someone to, to speak out against. Right. So Jim staged his first fake assassination attempt, and the first one was real real basic. He just walked outside his house with a gun and just shot it at his house <laughs> and ran back inside and called a lot the police. Of thought into that one. <laughs> yeah. um, and the cops didn't do anything about it, but they knew, they kind of knew that. Like, this wasn't real. Like, he just shot at the house and was calling, like, this was bullshit. How do we have this information? Did this admit it later? Or? No, this would be, um, this would be people from the, the congregation. I think his, his son, Stephen, because okay. his son, Stephen survived. Okay. And he's been making all the documentaries and stuff, and right. outspoken about so. everything. But now, so he had two enemies now. He had, Somebody in the community is trying to kill me for trying to desegregate this. And the police didn't do anything for me, just like they don't do anything for you. 
That's perfect. Now it tie. Now he has that connection with the uh, the black community about yeah. how the, well they're not going to help me. Now I know what it's like when they don't help you. Right, and you can hear that if listening to his sermons from around this time. It's filled with stuff like that. Like they they view me the same way they view you. You know. Yeah. So he's willing to 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 do these fake assassination attempts. He's willing to help people out, but then they must pledge their utmost loyalty to him. I think it's like with him being a kid. People who truly care about civil rights aren't doing this. Even politicians aren't doing this. They're not making you pledge their utmost loyalty to them. Right. They're helping you, and then they're saying, if you agree with my cause, vote for me. I don't know. Again, I I just think that, for me, that speaks more towards it's just about the power and the control. It's a huge part of it. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. yeah I mean, it's it's absolutely it's the major part of it. It's um, it's at least the major part of it. Yeah, and this this is real. This isn't like there's not much real debate on this. At, at around this time, he became obsessed with the idea of nuclear war, and um, you know, this was during you know Russia being a threat and stuff. During he the got Cold a, War. So was he writing about this? Was he speaking out about it? He Why was did speaking we out about was, it constantly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he started telling the congregation that they needed to get out of Indianapolis. So he started scouting out places to move the People's Temple. And that's the first time that he went down to visit Guyana. Guyana was going to be a socialist country, but at that time they had just gained their independence and they weren't stable yet. So Jim put them on the back burner. In 1962, Esquire ran an article about nine locations in the world that would have minimal damage in the event of a nuclear war actually happening. Even though Eureka, California was on the list, Jim decided to try Brazil instead, which was also on the list, which uh, it would have made sense to try California before you go down and and try Brazil. Yeah, possibly. (laughs) Logistically, it might be a little easier. Right. Just my opinion. So Jim packed up his family and left the congregation and trust to uh, into some pastors that he was friends with and went to Belo Horizonte, Brazil. Sweet. Big mistake, Jim. Big mistake. Does he speak yeah. Portuguese? No. Jim? No. No? No, he speaks Brazilian like everyone else who lives there. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, and well, this was a complete failure for him. Because of poverty in Brazil, he figured he could do the same thing that he did in Indianapolis, but he didn't take into account that he doesn't speak Portuguese, like you said, and there were tons of missionaries there already, like thriving, and so they weren't it, to buy, about to buy his bullshit, right? And there was no one to save from racism, like there was. Yeah, sure. The only thing that he gained out of Brazil was a story that he told to his congregants over and over again when he got back that some woman there wanted to have sex with him, and he <laughs> refused um, when she pushed more for Like it. the honest man that he is, he refused. <laughs> right. And he told her if he, would, if he did it, she had to donate $5,000 to a local orphanage, and he did. Oh, that's a sacrifice, man. What a sacrifice by him. But that's, that he used that as a thing of... I know, he did. Well, I'm sure all those hot Brazilian chicks were all lining up to pay this fucking troll five grand to bang him. <laughs> yeah. See this fucking guy? I mean, look at the pictures. I know you had mentioned Elvis. He kind of looks like Wayne Newton to me. He's like a young Wayne Newton. I think it's just the hair and the sunglasses that make me five think of Elvis. Grand. He's not a great looking guy. 
But you know what? I admire him for that sacrifice he made to cheat on his wife with some hot Brazilian girl. But in exchange, he would do this... Because she was paying five thousand dollars to what was it the local, the local orphanage? Orphanage. orphanage. Yeah. What a good man! <laughs> but he would. I mean, he would use that as an example of sacrificing oh, yeah. things for the. Of course. So here's the question. So did that? Did that really happen, or was that like one of those stories he made up? No, that did not happen. It did not even happen. No. Okay. I just thought maybe he got busted cheating, and that was the excuse he no. made. No. I mean, it's safe to assume that no one paid five grand to. Of course not. But I'm just saying. (laughs) I would agree with that. My point was, did he get caught cheating? And then that's what he said as the story. No, we'll we'll see later that he he gets away with cheating. No no questions asked. That's just an odd thing to make up then. Why would you why would you even give a why if you were going to make up a story? Why even give a chance to show like a weakness in yourself? It shows like, that he's that he willing was to sacrifice around. himself. But there's go like, to the cause. But he could have said, "Oh, they beat the shit out of me," and then they donated five thousand dollars. Instead, he got sexual pleasure out of it, and they donated five thousand well, dollars. You would think he would have thought of more of a, a better sacrifice. I had to go four days without food or drink because they held me captive. But then I got out, and yeah. they agreed to five thousand dollars. Well, it's probably Something. a setup for later. So, so they can manage his fuck schedule that you referenced uh, okay. earlier. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. That would be Maybe my so. thought. Maybe so then. And th- there's tapes from um, from I'm, Jonestown recording where he's ranting and raving, talking about that he's fucked for five hours at times till his dick is raw to get get money or whatever for the cause and stuff such like, a sacrifice, <laughs> man. He's like he goes on some ridiculous sex rants. This guy's a saint. Yeah. He spent. Two years in Brazil and back in Indianapolis, the temple was absolutely falling apart because people were coming there for Jim Jones. They weren't going to see these other pastors. They wanted Jim Jones. And the only reason that he admitted, because he could never admit failure. Because he was afraid. Like, that's why he would go after people who were going to leave him. Because he was afraid. Like, he didn't like when people didn't trust him or left or whatever. Right. And you could even then that's you could even make the argument that what happened in Jonestown was just because he wouldn't admit failure. I mean, who knows? But we'll get into that later on. But um, he because of JFK was assassinated, he used that as an excuse to go back to the U.S. and say like, "Well, I was doing good work in Brazil, but shit's going to hell in the U.S. and my congregation needs me, so they I'm need coming back me here." <laughs> But when he got back, there was only a small part of the congregation left in desegregation. So it all went on without him. They didn't. It wasn't like he he wasn't needed. It wasn't solely on him. Things moved on without him. But with that, he he learned a uh, a big lesson, which was to never let power get away from him again because he had lost um, right. pretty much lost everything. But you know that was a big yeah. a big turning point for Great. him. Great. Uh, but he was still still scared of uh, nuclear war, so he went back to the uh, the Esquire article and decided to scout out Eureka, California. And he got word back that Ukiah would be a perfect place to move the People's Temple. So Jim convinced his followers by saying, if you weren't afraid of nuclear war, then you would be living a better life in California. And if you liked your life in Indianapolis... It was because of Jim Jones, so you need to move out there with him. You <laughs> oh, owe yeah. him. So in 1965, Jim took about 100 members and moved to Redwood Valley, California, right outside of Ukiah. 
But there was the problem with Ukiah, just like Brazil, is there wasn't any problems out there for him to fix. My niece and nephew live in Ukiah. It seems pretty awesome. Really? Yeah. Yeah? (laughs) That's interesting. Is there a big statue to Jim Jones out there? (laughs) I I don't know. It's a lot of weed. I know that. (laughs) When they got out there, there were a lot of... uh, There wasn't much to grow the congregation really you know there was a lot of white people just didn't really want anything to do with people's temple but well sure there wasn't like a segregation issue they didn't there wasn't racial tensions i mean there were racial tensions but it wasn't like indianapolis where he you know right it was a white community right yeah, yeah. so it was it's there, not there an urban area yeah, yeah right. right they weren't con- concerned with that he wasn't going to attract black people and he wasn't going to convince white people there were some white people in the area that had more progressive views, so those were the people that he um, that he went for, and they needed money, so he shifted the recruitment from uh, black and poor to rich and white, and he started recruiting educated white people who had just wanted something different, wanted equality, um, and wanted to help out. And at this time, he started screening new members, and they they wouldn't just let anyone join. You had to have, you know, the right attitude towards. Why did he start now? Was it because it was a new area? And you're bringing in. They were less more, vulnerable. You probably had. To. Yeah, you're bring, now you're bringing in white people, yeah. you know, that are. They weren't as, uh, like, strong to the cause necessarily. Right. As in Indianapolis. And they would screen these people without them even knowing it. It would just be like a little old lady talking to them. You know, and if mm-hmm. they passed, then they would go back to Jim and tell him what was said, whatever. And then Jim would go in and talk to this person and immediately have a personal conversation with them. And and would it just be like random, like you got like a diner and some old ladies talking to you? Like well, they, they would have like like events, you know, OK, like, I see what you mean. like cookouts or whatever at the People's Temple and come have a bratwurst and learn about the People's Temple. <laughs> Get on my fuck schedule. We're not there yet, Dave. Oh, sorry. Sorry about that. <laughs> He's not that powerful yet. But they they needed undesirable, undesirable people, too, because they were just as important as people that had money. Well, he, meaning poor people, not, right? Well, like people that were in, like people that were in jail okay. or addicted to drugs or something. They yeah. would not just would, well off suburbanite, right? Yeah. White people because he did need people to fix too. Right. So he would bail people out of jail. Like a they lot didn't of what, want just UGG boots and soy macchiatos at their meetings. <laughs> they wanted more than just fucking basic suburban white people, right? And what, like, say someone's uh, family member got thrown in jail for something, you know? But then the family member wasn't part of the temple. He would bail them out, and then be like, "Get in here! I'll turn your life around." Yeah. And then once he turns their life around, now they owe him. Are we boring you, Max? Sorry. <laughs> the hell of a groan was that? He said, fuck Jim Jones. He's like, yeah, he's like, are you guys done yet? I'm trying to get to bed. And he's all, he was always just a generally paranoid person, but he started to, to bring that into the followers. And he at sometimes just would randomly say that they had entered an, they had entered an accident cycle. Jim would say that he had a vision of a disaster coming, and the only way they could avoid it was if they believed in him. One of the fo- followers to... Uh, to actually fall to one of Jim's accident cycles was a man named Whitey Firestone. Uh, he was one of the members that caused a bunch of trouble all the time. 
and was often brought into the front of the congregation just to be yelled at. They would just, like, shout him down. <laughs> Look, Whitey, you fuck. What's your problem? What, are you whip him with branches like you did those kids back in the day? No, nothing, phys- <laughs> nothing physical yet. No. We'll get to physical punishments, right. but okay. Right at this time, they were just yelling at him. Uh, one night after he got yelled at real bad, he accidentally drove his whole family off of a cliff. <laughs> That's unfortunate. <laughs> oh, God. So. Jesus. I don't know why we're and laughing at that. That's terrible. Well, it's kind of debated on whether if he did that on purpose or if it really oh was an accident. I'm talking about Whitey. Yeah. Jim doesn't love me anymore. <laughs> I've heard on the tapes how they yell at each other. They get brutal sometimes. I just picture this guy getting... Because it sounded like from reading the uh, Road to Jonestown, like Whitey got it worse than anybody at this time. Like They were really <sighs> shitting on him. Poor Whitey. As soon as Jim heard about the accident, he rushed down there and he actually he climbed down the, the cliff and pulled them all out of the car. Uh, one of Whitey's kids died in the crash. The rest of them survived. And, and Jim used that to validate these accident cycles. You know, he claimed to have healed Whitey and, and his family, but one of the children had to be set where, you know, they died actually because died. they didn't listen to him with the accident cycle thing. And that's what he would use to preach to other people. Yeah, it'd be like, look, one I of his saved kids- them. I did my part as the hero to save them, but because they didn't listen to me, they lost a kid. Yep. Yeah. And then he he really was able to sell it when um, this woman named Joyce Sweeney got into a car accident and died. Jim told her, or, and this isn't he didn't really tell her this, but this is what he told his congregation sure. happened. He said that he had a vision and told her to stop and meditate for two minutes before leaving. And she didn't. And so she got in the accident. Oh, of course. How convenient. Right. So it was like, if you don't listen to every little thing I tell you to Mm -hmm. do, you could die is basically what's what it's getting to now. And we still think this guy is all about civil rights and making a difference. I think we're moving past that. Okay. It's getting megalomaniac stuff now. Yeah. So for about three years, the People's Temple didn't didn't gain many followers. Yeah, because they suck. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking asshole. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Fuck this guy. <laughs> yeah, because they suck. That was awesome. That, that reminds me of the Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> Fucking thing sucks. <laughs> do it live. <laughs> we'll do it live. Fuck it. I'll rate it. We'll do it live. <laughs> Fucking thing sucks. <laughs> Thank you, Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> best things you've ever said. Well, no, the best thing he ever said was when he got sued for har- <laughs> harassing the girl he worked with, and he was talking to her about in the shower and asked her if she used the falafel on her be- <laughs> on, on herself in the shower when he meant to say a loofah. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking jackass. <laughs> The falafel. Is there tape of that? Oh, yeah. I've never heard that. There's there's written transcripts somewhere, I think. Yeah. I'm asking her about the falafel in the shower. He was sending a bunch of text messages, too, wasn't he? Asking about the falafel in the shower. You guys like falafel? I love falafel. I don't even know what that is. I've never had falafel. I always get. Oh, my God. I I know it's a food. I always get shawarma. I'm a big shawarma fan. like the shawarma? Lamb shawarma. I love lamb shawarma. Best. It's the best. I get it. No onions, though. Fuck onions. I don't like onions unless they're cooked. Okay. Come on, give me that raw shit. <laughs> you don't want to raw dog your lunch? 
Not, I want fucking raw onions in my mouth. That's what I want. I don't want. So like every, uh, just everything that happens with Jim, he, he saw an opportunity to manipulate stuff when um, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Uh, after he was assassinated, one of the largest black churches in San Francisco held a memorial service that was open to the public. And when Jim heard about it, he figured this was the best, a great opportunity to, to meet more people. So they uh, they went they his whole congregation went there at the time and uh, and they they stuck out because they had white members you know and it was it was odd for for that church to see white members but they sure. but they embraced everybody everybody was you know got along and stuff and and they started talking to people afterwards and Jim said and invited them invited them to Redwood Valley, you know, you come anytime you want. So he saw this as like a recruitment event. Oh, yeah. Like, let's go show face. We'll go to the funeral. We'll talk to people. Yeah. We'll show them that we're black and white united. Right. That's exactly what this is all about. This is what Martin Luther King would have wanted. And, you know, this is come join us. Yep. And so a bunch of people from San Francisco came. And when they came, they saw the racial equality and religion and then Jim threw in a few healings on top of it. Uh, of course. Boom, any, you're for, healed. For anybody that was <laughs> in. Boom, oh. cancer. Chicken guts, gone. Well, he wasn't. He was doing the mind readings. That's what, it, that's what he was. He was back to the oh, mind. So he was just telling them what they ailed from. He wasn't curing it. Yeah, he was doing the whole thing where he was having uh, plan. What well, this time now he had plans to go tell him what people were thinking. Oh, and then he would they would come oh, back. Man. Yeah, he wasn't actually uh he wasn't walking around. He's got people for that now. Yeah, and his main one was Patty Cartmel. She was until the end one of his most loyal followers, and she had been uh, she had been following him since the recruit or since the revival circuit because that's and she that's what she was looking for was just this preacher to you know tell her every you know to just do the, this whole faith healing thing. What's her, so? What's her story? Patty. Yeah. Like, why is she just looking for someone to kind of tell her what to do or like to, to, to I, follow? I think she was just one of those type of people that were religious, looking for this kind of thing and was completely sold on Jim Jones. Okay. And, and for the members who weren't religious, again, like these newer members, he would tell them, you know, this is the, the means justify the ends here. You know, we're doing this to get these people in here for the for the cause. We just need to recruit more members. And, uh, you know, people were sold on it from San Francisco. He's, he was doing the same thing for because San Francisco had had racial problems more than, you know, Ukiah didn't really have that. But San Francisco sure. had it. Sure. So he started doing the same exact thing that he did in Indianapolis, where he was saying, like, I'll take care of what you, your problems. And it started, uh, you know, he was making people's lives better. And the membership started growing again. And, you know, at their lowest point, they were at 86 followers. But by 1973, they had a little over 3,000. Wow. Solid growth. Yeah. <clears throat> things things start going off the rails here a bit. In Redwood Valley, this was in 1969, Jim introduced his first poison test to his followers. And th this was too close like inner circle people. And the point of this was just to test loyalty? If they were willing to die for the cause. The cause of what? Socialism. Revolution. Okay. What, he, what does that do? What is dying? What does that even mean? 
Dying for what? What does that gain you? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think it was just a loyalty test. Yeah. I think it was a poor loyalty test. Yeah. Who's going to get panicked that I'm actually going to kill them? If if someone stutters, I can go to them and say, why don't you trust me? Why would you think I'm going to kill you? Yeah. Probably a power control. Am I, was it Huey Newton that wrote the book, Revolutionary Suicide? The Black Panther Huey Newton? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I don't know. But I mean, that seemed like a common theme with this this type of move, like this movement, you know, like a final showdown going out. Yeah. I don't know if it was Huey Newton or not. I could be wrong in that. So this test, he served them lime Kool-Aid. So he used the real Kool-Aid brand name stuff for this one. That's my favorite Kool-Aid. The green Kool-Aid. It's (laughs) fucking delicious. I like the red. I'm not a big Kool-Aid fan. I like the red. I mean, when I was, you know, 10. Yeah. Yeah, I can't even remember the last time I had Kool-Aid. You know, with that whole cup of sugar in the pitcher. Right. I don't think I ever... I always drank High C. High C's good. Yeah, Ecto Cooler yeah, yeah, from yeah. the Ghostbusters. Yeah, that's yeah. good. <laughs> Cream Kool-Aid is fucking awesome. So, yeah, he to- he toasted everybody. And when they all took a drink, he told them it was poison. And he, w- he watched real careful and noted how each person reacted. So... And with that memory, he probably remembered yep. every single person. Mm. Like, who was fine with it, who freaked out, who didn't believe him. They should have all picked up a knife and stabbed him like Julius Caesar right on the Boom. spot. End of this right here. Yep. Here's my question. The people that didn't believe him, was that frowned upon or looked good upon? Was it like a, oh, I know you would never hurt us type thing? Or was it, why the fuck don't you believe me? Are you not willing to die for me? I th- like is it a, is it a good thing or a bad thing if you don't believe him? I think if he always had well, it's it seemed like he always had this in his back pocket because he does this numerous times over the years, like the testing, yeah. like testing people. I almost view it as like it was a better thing if they because then he could actually do it whenever he pulled that pulled the card out. So he wanted to see you just take it, no questions asked, and you're just gonna move on. Yeah. Like, up, oh, he says, take the shot. All right, let's just drink it. Let's go. Because you see, I mean, the people, there's evidence that in Jonestown that the people that resisted were forced right. to take it. Well, that's murder. Yeah. Well, so the whole thing is murder, but yeah. We'll judge that at the end. I'm not convinced of that yet. Well, we haven't gotten there yet. That's why I'm not convinced. But I mean, then this is, I mean, it just, it brought the members closer together. They were, they were still gaining new members and... And especially for the people that were good with it, because it's like, look, we're willing to die for the cause. Um, well, yeah, I would imagine that would bring them closer together, like people yeah. who are willing to die for something like this. Yeah. So even though the People's Temple was a success, um, things weren't going well for Jim at home. Marcelin had a really bad back, and by the late 60s, it had made sex impossible. That's when Jim found Carolyn Layton, who he had an affair with and was one of the most key people in his inner circle until the end because Marcelin was a good person. She was generally a good woman. Yeah. Carolyn Layton was absolutely evil. Mm. Like Jim, she followed whatever Jim said was what Jim said. I mean, there's a, like a memo from Jonestown that was recovered yeah. where she's writing like, how could how can we do it? How can we do revolutionary suicide? Maybe we just line everybody up and shoot them like the Nazis used to shoot people. Mm. You know, I mean, she was like, well, if she was under his spell, why isn't she a sympathetic figure like you think all, a lot of the other victims are? Carolyn, yeah, I 
I don't think she was under his spell okay. like that. I think that... You don't think she joined the cause to actually make a difference? You think she joined the cause to hurt people? Or like the power? I think it was just Jim Jones and the power that she got from being his his number one. Cause she, she Could can, any of these people have been had fit into that role? Well, we'll see later. There's multiple Carolyn Laytons. At the end of Jonestown, it's basically um, Carolyn Layton, her sister, Annie Moore, and uh, Maria Katsaris, which was another one of his mistresses, were basically almost running that. They were all the on the fuck schedule? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Why I don't know if Annie that, Moore... I don't kill know if everyone, Annie was. Man. Got that fuck schedule was 24-7. I don't think Annie Moore was on the fuck schedule. Hmm. Um, she might have been a little quick half-hour Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> But like I said, he he chose Carolyn because he saw it in her that she she was an evil. She woman. had the the I guess you'd call it the guts to do stuff that Marceline didn't have because Marceline was just a good person, right? Who should have divorced back in the day, and her mom talked her out of it. Yeah, notice there's a woman villain in every story that we've told <laughs> thus far. Yeah, well, well what's our this, thing behind every behind bad every man. bad man? There's a there's a, a worse woman. A wor- yeah. <laughs> Carolyn wasn't like she wasn't immediately like didn't go for Jim immediately or anything like that. She was convinced by Patty Cartmel in a public in one of their uh, inner circle meetings. Jim was talking about how he wasn't having sex with Marcelin at home. And so in Patty, I feel bad for Patty. She offered in this meeting to, to like basically like, I'll fuck you. I'll do it, whatever. And she was not an attractive woman. <laughs> Wait, why do you feel bad for Patty? Well, because Patty was just... Well, here, I'm going to tell you why I feel bad for Patty. Because she offered to fuck him. And he said, no, I got something else for you. I'm going to put you in charge of my fuck schedule. So you're going to make a schedule for me of all the people that, I, that I'm going to be... That I'm going to be fucking. And feel free to uh, leave yourself off that list. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did she write a autobiography like too ugly to have Jim Jones put his cock in or something? <laughs> I'm the one woman Jim Jones wouldn't fuck. <laughs> wow, poor Patty. Yeah. So, but she she um, pretty sure she gets her comeuppance. Who? Patty treating everyone else like shit moving forward. No. Hey, next time, man. Next time. Is Patty not that evil of a person? Is that all she does? Is run his fuck schedule? Oh yeah. She just oh. truly believed in Jim Jones. Okay. <clears throat> no, she's not. She I, just, I, she just, yeah, she just truly believed in him. Why are you projecting on Ugly Patty? I stand corrected. I thought she had more of a role than just running a fuck schedule. No, she. That was it. She You're like, nope, the, man. That was it. She ran the fuck Patty, schedule. you're not going to get fucked. Maybe you'd like to run the fuck schedule. That made her feel important. <laughs> and then she did it. But so she convinced uh, Carolyn Layton to, to be with Jim. She basically said, like, mm. Jim. Jim needs this to keep going forward to be Jim. He won't be able to lead the cause if he's not. If he's backed up, he can't lead the cause. And it's it's crazy, too, that Carolyn Layton was married when she came into this. She was married to Larry Layton, who Larry Layton is the one at the end. We'll get into him at the end where he's the only one to be charged with a crime for this because he was captured at the really? at the airstrip. Yeah. Hmm. So Jim basically stole his wife from him and said, look, I'm taking your wife now, but I'll replace her with a with a hotter wife. 
So he grabbed someone from his congregation and was just like, well, you're going to, you're going to be Larry's wife now. And I'm taking, I'm taking his wife. And this guy wouldn't just went like, all right, Hmm. whatever. That's like the walking dead where he took Dwight's wife. He he didn't give him another one though. That is true. That's like, uh, (laughs) some of us don't watch that show. Yeah. doesn't make any fucking sense. Negan. Yeah. Let me put this iron on your face and I'm going to fuck your wife. (laughs) Right. So Carolyn will be the evil bitch moving forward. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's where I was getting mixed up. It'll be more Carolyn, not Patty. Patty just ran that that old bang schedule. Yeah. <laughs> Got to get my, that guy off every 30 minutes or whatever the fuck it was. Yep. And Do we have any copies of that fuck schedule? I'd like to post that. No. no. I got the rug run on his cock, so it must have been pretty Well, active. allegedly. I'm not so. convinced. And that's the other thing with... With Jim too and his fuck schedule, it wasn't just women. It was or women. It was men too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, we didn't even touch really? on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's an interview with Tim Carter, the guy that survived Jonestown, where he said uh, one of the first times he met, or he had been in for a little bit, but Jim came up to him and was like, uh, "You know how you doing here? You know you like everything?" And he was like, "Oh yeah, whatever." And Jim, he said, Jim put his hand on the back of his neck and he was like, if you're into it, I'll fuck you in the ass if you want. Interesting. And boom goes the dynamite. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, Jim, he he swung both ways on that stuff. But so in 19... So that's even, that makes that schedule even fucking harder to keep up with. Oh, yeah, there's guys... Like you have to alternate back and forth? I mean, I guess you got to work with the boss and figure out what he likes. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, he didn't do it as much as he did with women, but he still did it. Obviously. Yeah. You just you sprinkle a little dick in that schedule. Yeah, you don't just coat it with dick. It it, it was active enough. <laughs> it was mean? active enough that an older member, I I don't know if it was Tim Carter, but an older member told one of the guys that I guess was potentially someone that Jim Jones would fuck said to uh, to use a douche first because Jim would be super pissed off if he got shit on his dick. No kidding. Yep. There's a lot going on down there. Yeah, so in 1970, Jim Jones would be would go from this manipulative cult leader into just a full-blown paranoid just maniac, and that's when he became addicted to amphetamines. So he was Mr. Nice Guy up to this point. Well, no, he's not a nice guy, but the amph- when the amphetamines boosted a whole new level. Yeah. Cuz yeah. I mean, if you're already a paranoid person and you're already an asshole, you mean the speed doesn't help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, and that's where we'll we'll pick up on part two. All right, so that was part one of Jim Jones. I think we laid a good groundwork today for uh, how this all got started. The most, what, probably infamous cult in uh, American history. Yeah. I would imagine. I would think so, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we got two more parts probably coming up. Right. Touching on the rest of the story. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. Let us know what you think about it. Ian, what else you got to uh, plug on Jim Jones or anything else? He's not ready with his plugs. God damn. Yeah, well, I just want to say thanks to everybody that's been listening. I don't think I said it the past couple weeks, but it's been uh, it's just it's been awesome the amount of downloads we're getting and and just feedback from people on social media. But uh, just want to give a shout out to in a city like yours for the awesome review on iTunes. Dave, what do you got? I just want, I want to give a shout out to Beer and Beards for the. Olivia Wilde auto, alien autopsy f- photo. 
Outstanding. They sent us an awesome photo of Olivia Wilde. We'll have to post that at some point here. (laughs) (laughs) Outstanding. Hilarious. Awesome Photoshop done on that, too. (laughs) Can't even tell. Can't even tell. (laughs) Looks like the real thing. A uh, quick shout out to uh, Witness27 for giving us a plug on Instagram. We really appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, our friends at Pod Van Dam, they had me on this past week. Uh, I, w- I got to uh, co-host with Ed. Um, so a shout out to Ed and Pat. They have an awesome uh, wrestling podcast at Pod Van Dam. Give them, uh, give them a listen. Check them out on uh, Twitter, Pod Van Dam. Uh, thank you guys for having me on and letting me plug the show. Appreciate it. And so, then also, go ahead. So I listened to your performance on Pod Van Dam. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, thank you. I will take, I don't know what's the word. Umbridge. Umbridge with Ed. He made the statement that he didn't believe we went to the moon because how could we do such a thing back then when we didn't even have a flashlight? <laughs> Uh, ridiculous argument. I believe we went to the moon. Wouldn't Ed Gein <laughs> beg to differ on the fleshlight? Ed Gein had a fleshlight, a homemade fleshlight. What year was that, though? In the 50s. So there might have been fleshlights so, at, booyah, at Pod Van Dam. <laughs> we went to the moon, fleshlight irregardless. Anyways, check out Pod Van Dam. Awesome uh, podcast, funny, uh, intelligent guys over there. If you uh, are, especially check them out if you're a pro wrestling fan. Um, Pod Van Dam, uh, Ed, and Pat. Thanks, guys, for letting me co-host this past week also. And one last thank you again to Odell Brewing Company uh, for sending us the Classic IPA, which has been fucking phenomenal, and the 90 Shilling, which is their flagship beer. Can't thank you guys enough. We appreciate it. That beer was awesome. That's what we've been drinking all night. What's the ABV on that IPA? That uh, ABV on the IPA. You caught me off guard asking me that question. That is a 7.0. Outstanding. Um, I can tell. Really good. I can tell. (laughs) Yeah. Well, probably. Check them out at odellbrewing.com. That's O-D-E-L-L brewing.com. We appreciate it. All right, guys. You got anything else? Nope. No? That's it. Great show. Ready for a cool down beer? Thank you. Thank you, Odell.